Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with Senior Pastor Rob Kellogg. He's the only uncreated one. He's never been created. He's never been created. He always has existed with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is faithful. And that means that He is faithful in every area, in every area of His life, in everything that He does. He's worthy of our trust. He can be relied upon. Welcome, everyone, to today's edition of Truth in Christ Radio with Senior Pastor Rob Kellogg. The final letter to the churches is the letter to the church at Laodicea. Once again, Jesus begins by describing himself. Jesus is the Amen, the so be it, the it is done. He is the personification and the affirmation of the truth of God. He also says he is faithful and true, which was a contrast to the Laodiceans, who will be shown to be neither faithful nor true. Now let's join Pastor Rob with today's study. Open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be looking this morning at this church of Revelation. It's called the Church of Laodicea. First, let's read verses 14 through the end of the chapter, through verse 22. Again, it's the church of Laodicea. And let's read it together. And the angel, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do you not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, blind, and naked? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says 
to the churches, to the churches. And so as we look at this church of Laodicea, it's a letter where there are no commendations whatsoever. There's nothing good that the Lord has to say about this church. In fact, there's only rebuke. And if you remember last week, we looked at the church of Philadelphia, and that was in very stark contrast to the church we're looking at this morning. Because the church of Philadelphia was a church that was vibrant, it was alive, it was doing all the right things. And the Lord commended them and actually had nothing to rebuke them of. But this church is very different in every way. This one had nothing, no, con, no commendations whatsoever, but only rebuke. Only rebuke. And you recall when we first started looking at the churches of Revelation that I said that the, these churches were physical churches in the first century that were located in Asia Minor, in the western uh, side of it, and, and that is true. However, have you ever asked yourself the question, why is it, perhaps, that the Lord chose these seven churches out of all of the churches in the area? We know that 35 years prior to when this was written, because remember, the book of Revelation was written around 95, 96 A.D., and Paul the Apostle had written to, and we have those letters in our Bibles, the Thessalonians, the Romans, the uh, Colossians, the Galatians, and yet none of those churches are listed here by the Lord. And I, I've wondered why he chose these seven churches specifically. And I'm just going to give you my opinion, a, a possibility, but I think it is very possible that as the Lord chose these churches, that he was also, he did that for a reason. Number one, he knew that everyone in every church would exemplify some of these characteristics, good and bad. In every church, in every fellowship that's ever existed, even within our own fellowship, there are those who are on fire and there are those who are barely on life support. And so that those things are true in every church. So he gives us that, but he also gives us an outline of church history. We believe that because there are so many, and I don't believe these are coincidences, there are those who have taken it in hand to examine church history thus far, and these churches, in the order that they have been given by the Lord, seem to very clearly lay out different periods in the church, and it's very interesting, and and it ought not to surprise us if that is the case, because we know that God lies outside of time. He's not confined by time like we are, so he can see all of history as if it has already been completed. And that's why he can speak to us about things coming in the future with absolute 100% certainty because he knows. He's already seen it. He's already, and that's why he can write it in advance. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. Most of it is prophecy yet to be fulfilled, things that have yet to take place. And so it wouldn't surprise me if the Lord did that. And so as we look at this church, notice this one is at the very end, at the very end. And many believe that this church is the church in all of its, um, it, the things that aren't so healthy about it, is a representation of the church even right now before the Lord returns for his church. We don't know when that time is. We can't set dates. It would be foolish to do such thing, to do such a thing. But we know and believe by looking at this letter and we look at the signs all around us and the things that are happening on, on a global scale, we see this kind of thing happening. And even within our own hearts at times, if we're not careful, we can see this Laodicean spirit, if you will, just kind of come over people. And it's something that we don't have to succumb to. We, we, we must resist it because all around us, everything in our culture is designed by the powers that be to dull that sense, 
and, and to get you to think about anything but Jesus Christ. All of our education, all of our, most of our education, most of our television, most of our entertainment is anything but biblical. And it's anything but trying to encourage you to get closer to the Lord. In fact, it's actually doing the opposite. And the more we spend time in that world, if you will, the more we're going to have a, we're going to have a lesser of an appetite of the things of God and certainly the Word of God. So how important is it for us to be in the Word of God? It's very important. It's very important. And I would encourage you, as we look at this church, it's going to be difficult, okay? But I want you to really examine yourself and allow the Lord to examine you. Take whatever the Lord gives to you. Some of you are going to be like, this really doesn't apply to me, and that's okay. Some of us, it's going to apply. One of these things is going to hit us right in the heart because I know as I was preparing for it, I was just like, Lord, help. You know, these are difficult, difficult things. And so, we believe we live in that age, in this Laodicean age. But that doesn't mean that there aren't Philadelphians among us. And hopefully I'm one of those Philadelphians. And I hope that you are too, a person who exemplifies that church of Philadelphia where the Lord had no rebuke, but only commendation. And so that, that's really the thing that we desire more than anything, isn't it? Isn't it really to, to love the Lord and to love His Word, to love His people? to have our hearts on fire again for the things of God and, and to encourage people, not, not in some kind of uh, weird bravado, not in some kind of legalistic fashion. You, you see that, don't you? And unfortunately, it turns so many people off. When people get zealous for the Lord, sometimes they cross the line and they get into their own flesh and they start you know, standing out on corners yelling at people, shaking the Bible. And, and telling them, calling them names even. And there are some churches in Texas that even have done that. And it's really an embarrassment to the church when people do that. Because that's not the Lord. That's not His heart, I can tell you. And so, let's look at this. We've already read verses 14 through 22. Let's begin at verse 14 again, and we'll kind of tear this apart as we go. It says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, and so when we look at this, we first see Laodiceans. This Laodiceans are church people in this church of Laodicea. That's the town. So Laodiceans are the name of the people. And the, the, the definition of a Laodicean uh, is the people ruling or judgment of the people. In other words, the, the, the church is kind of in control rather than the Lord being in control of the church. And it's a sad thing when there is no longer any church leadership and they've given up being governed by God and rather they get things done by voting and having some kind of democracy within the church. And that's really not the way the Lord works either. The Lord has worked through uh, men and, and spoken to men and has had them lead. And, and that's the way we believe things that the, that the Lord does things. And instead of being led by the Lord, the church, the, the, this church, they decide what it wants. They decide what they want and they develop a committee and then they make it happen. They just make it happen whether the Lord is in it or not. And this is very dangerous. We need to be very careful. And this is one of the things that the Laodicean age, one of the tenets of the Laodicean age is people ruling over and, and just a, a group of people. It, it's more like, it becomes more like a democracy rather than a church. And, um, and everybody has a say and everybody has an equal vote. And, you know, it, that all sounds nice and everything, but uh, when that tends to happen, there's, there's always trouble. There is always trouble. But notice what Jesus goes on and he says, These, th these things says the Amen. And the Amen, we, we use that word a lot and it's become very 
uh, common for us, and in fact, it's it's common in every language. The word amin is really how you pronounce it. Amin. It is. Uh, it means trustworthy. It means something that is true. It means I agree with that. And in fact, it, it's a, a it's transli- uh, transliterated directly from the Hebrew into the Greek of the Old Testament or in the New Testament. Excuse me, and also into Latin, into English, and many other languages. It's a universal word. Every language, everyone knows what amen means. It means we agree with what you're saying. That's why in some church services you might hear somebody say amen after a statement. And so this would actually be a slap in the face to this church by Jesus saying the amen because he is not false. They, as a result of, of, of their lukewarmness and, and the condition of the church, they were, they were false. They weren't actually walking in truth. And Jesus is now saying, thus says the Amen. Thus says the one who is true, the one who is trustworthy. And so he also says the faithful and true witness. You know, when, you know, Jesus is the perfect man. He's the Son of God. He, he, he's the only uncreated one. He's never been created. He's never been created. He always has existed with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is faithful. And that means that He is faithful in every area, in every area of His life, in everything that He does. He's worthy of our trust. He can be relied upon. You remember in the very first chapter of Revelation, in verse 5, what did it say about Jesus Christ? It said that He was the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. And so, Jesus Christ is, He is faithful in every sense of the word. In fact, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, and I hope it's one of yours too, is John 14, verse 6. It's one that we know very well, where Jesus said to His disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father except through me, Jesus said. And so that's important. He is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. And He's also the faithful and He's also the true witness. The word witness here is where we get our word martyr from. Because the the word in the Greek is martis. And it literally means a witness. uh, One who is a spectator of anything. Um, and certainly, Jesus, who is eternal and dwells in, in eternity and outside of time, He is able to be a spectator on all things. He can look, He already knows, He's already seen it all, as if it has already been completed. And yet, we each have a free will in the midst of our lives. But He has the unfair advantage, I'm glad He has that advantage, but He has the advantage of seeing outside of time. So He doesn't make us do anything. He only gives us the opportunities and then we respond, but He knows how we're going to respond. But we have the ability to make those choices. He doesn't overrule us in that way, which I think is wonderful and it's necessary. That's a heavy doctrinal thought to to grasp. And the church has been torn uh, so much over this about uh, free will and, and, and God's sovereignty. But the truth of the matter is it's both. God is sovereign. But he's got an advantage that we can't even completely wrap our heads around because he lives outside of eternity. Or he lives in eternity, excuse me. And he also, Jesus has proved the strength and the genuineness of who he is by undergoing a violent death. And that's exactly what Jesus did too. And that's what this word means. He's the faithful and true witness, a witness, somebody who has gone to the end, even to the end of their life, 
And by their testimony and, and the genuineness of their faith, they prove it by even giving their life if necessary. And so, notice at the end of verse 14, it says, the beginning of the creation of God. And when you think of that, and when you read that, you may be thinking to yourself, well, Jesus then did have a beginning. Well, that's not really what it means there. It does not mean that Jesus was created. Rather, it does mean that he was in the beginning at the creation. In fact, um, I would encourage you in your Bible, uh, under that section, under that area, the beginning of the creation of God, I would encourage you to write down a couple passages. The first one is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 17. And let me read them to you because... If you take this verse by itself and you don't understand the context of it, what it means in the original, it's going to um, give you a warped sense of what it is. But look what it says in John chapter 1, and this is something we all know. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, in the beginning of when time began, we know that Jesus always lived even outside of time before He was incarnate in the Virgin Mary, right? By the Virgin Mary. But He always lived outside of time. He, he was alive before then, but He tabernacled Himself in human flesh to come and to, uh, pay the price for the sin of man, right? That's what He did. Notice what it says in John 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word is Jesus Christ, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, meaning our beginning, the beginning of the creation, the beginning of when God says, the beginning when we read in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's the beginning that we're talking about here. He was in the beginning, this Logos, this Jesus, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. So that means that this Jesus Christ he was there in the beginning. In fact, he was instrumental in creating it. In Colossians 1, verse 15, where I had you write down, it says, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that were in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him, and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So it's very clear to me that before you can make a, uh, create something, you have to exist beforehand. So this all makes sense, and doctrinally throughout the Bible, that is obviously what it says. So that's really what this verse means. Notice when Jesus goes on here and speaking to this church, he says, I know your works. And the idea is, I know your toil, I know your labor, I know the things that you do, and the Lord knows what you do, and the, and the things that you have done, the sacrifices that you have made, the, the service that you provide here at the church, and even services that you, service to Him that you do outside of the church, outside of the building, I should say. The Lord knows all these things. And He says to this church, He says, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were hot or cold. See, being cold is someone who is spiritually indifferent. They're kind of uh, uh, apathetic. They, they live in unbelief. They're, they can even be hostile towards the gospel. It could be someone who is unsaved or not born again, as we would say. But being hot is just the opposite, isn't it? Being hot speaks of somebody who is born again, who is literally boiling over with spiritual fervency, that there's someone who loves the Lord. They love the Word of God. 
they love to talk about the Lord and they're pursuing the Lord and they want to get that message out. And that is someone who is hot. And when someone is spiritually cold and knows it, guess what? There is hope. And that's why Jesus said, I wish you were cold or hot. Because if you're cold, he can do something with it, right? If a person is cold and they know they're lost and they don't have any salvation and they haven't given their heart to Christ, you can work with somebody like that. But someone who is straddling the fence, who is neither cold nor hot, but is somewhere in the middle, these are the hardest people to minister to. And perhaps you've been in churches, and even in our church, there's been a handful of people that over time I've been able to talk to, and you never know really where they're at because they say one thing, but their life and and their, their witness is completely different. And you, you just scratch your head, and you're wondering, what is going on here? And so... These are things that we really need to examine. That's why we need to examine our own hearts in this letter. And believe me, folks, this is not an easy letter, but it's something that we have to look at. So Jesus said in verse 16, So then, because of you, because you are lukewarm, and the idea of lukewarm is kliaros, uh, uh, which means a tepid, um, where you fluctuate and you're just kind of all over the place. He says, Because you are that way and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. The King James Version says spew. <laughs> the New King James says vomit. And the idea is just that very thing. is just the Lord. It, it is so displeasing to the Lord to have someone who calls him by name, but yet their lives are completely, you know, there's just no evidence of it at all. And, and Jesus said, I will just vomit you out of my mouth. And these are very hard words from the Lord. Very hard words from the Lord. But being lukewarm, it speaks of someone who's half in, they're half out. They got one foot in the world and they got one foot in the kingdom. It's being in the middle of the road, being neutral. And in our Christian walk, there is no room for this kind of thing. I would encourage you to make your your yes, yes, and your no, no. If you are a Christian, then get in the game. And if you are not a Christian, just be honest about it and say, Lord, I, I've been playing a game, but there's no fervency in my heart. I've got no desire for you, Lord. I've got no desire to, word, to read the Word of God, and I certainly don't have any desire to talk to people about you. And if that is the truth, we have to ask the hard question. You know, Lord, am I even one of yours? Am I even one of yours? My heart is just not there, Lord. And the Lord's like, I can deal with that. You know, if you're honest with the Lord, you know, He, he already knows. We don't need to uh, have some kind of pretense and, and, and fake our way into this thing. People do that all the time. There's a lot of actors in churches these days. But God is looking for the real genuine article. And there's no reason why we all can't be the genuine article because it's simply a, a confession away and a surrender away. And it's that simple. But again, our pride, if we're not careful, it gets in the way. And we're just like, no, I'm going to do my own thing, but I'm still going to have my foot in the church, but I'm going to have my foot in the world. And believe me, the Lord knows that you have need of things. He knows that you need to make money, and He knows you need to provide for your family. None of those things are, are foreign to Him. But you can still be a sold-out you know, believer in Christ and still be working all of these different things because guess what? Now he's got an ambassador at this job. He's got somebody who loves him at this job because guess what? All those people at those different jobs, all those people there are hopeless. Many of them are. 
They're on their second and third marriage. One guy is drinking himself to death. Another one is smoking pot on the side and he doesn't want his wife to know. And their kids are running amok and everything is a mess and they're all in debt. They're all broke. They're all despondent. They're, they're not talking to each other. They're on their phones all the time whenever they are around each other. And these are the things Jesus says, Let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from... I'm sorry, that's all the time we have for today, but please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of Revelation. Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday at area code 585-586-3140. If you would like to have an audio CD of today's message mailed to you in its unedited form, simply mention today's date when contacting our church office. You can also contact us via the web by logging on to www.calvaryrochester.com. There you will be able to access a number of useful things, such as information concerning our beliefs, our ministries, contact information, our location, service times, and much more. You can also download or listen to the radio and sanctuary messages free of charge from the teachings link at the top of the page. To listen to Calvary Chapel of Rochester sanctuary messages or Truth in Christ Radio on your mobile device, just subscribe to both through Google Play and Apple Podcasts. You may also join us on Sundays and Thursdays through live streaming of our services and Bible studies. Just click on the online services link. We're so glad that you could join us today. And if there is any way that we can bless you in your walk with Jesus Christ, please don't hesitate to call our church office. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. May God bless you in abundance today as you walk with him. And until next time, this has been Truth in Christ.